I had fallen into one of those very deep sleeps, and uh, it was something I really needed. It had been a tough period of time on the campus. We started out the academic year with a, a lot of conflict and about the mission of the institution and the vision. Then one of our, our brightest and most promising students, uh, one of our leaders in the student body, went home for school break and unfortunately stepped off the curb while he was jogging and was killed. And so we had to celebrate this young man's life cut way too short. Not long after that, I received a call in the office and I was told that the mother of our director of alumni relations for the school, who had been a much long beloved faculty member at the institution, had been hit on campus and killed by a delivery truck. And so the emotional exhaustion that comes with any kind of leadership responsibility had just taken its toll. And not only was it an emotional exhaustion, but also a physical exhaustion, and I have to confess, a spiritual exhaustion. This was my third opportunity to lead an institution, and the kind of misunderstanding I had is it would get easier each time. But one of the things I discovered is that leadership, much like politics, is very local. And what worked and what you experienced in a previous place may not necessarily be the thing that God needs in this next assignment. I was awakened from this deep sleep by the doorbell ringing. Looked over at the clock, it was well after midnight. <clears throat> Finally roused myself and opened the door and there stood my chief of security, my chief of police for the campus and my director of public relations and the campus chaplain. And they informed me that one of our freshman girls had just taken her life. And they weren't sure exactly how to respond to that. And I thought, oh dear God, if ever we needed you, we need you now. Because this young lady had been homeschooled. She was from the far Midwest. Her parents were very cautious about sending her to school. She'd been raised in a very protected environment and they were worried that she wouldn't do well. And I personally had assured the parents that, oh yes, our school was a place where she would be safe and she would be cared for. And now I'm facing the challenge of responding to a promise that we weren't able to keep. So I said to my chief of security, let's uh, call the home, but first I, I need to call the pastor. And so we had the record with us and I picked up the phone and called the pastor and he answered. I'd awakened him in the middle of the night as well. And, and I explained the situation to him and there was just dead silence on the, on the other end of the line. And I said, hello, are you, are you there? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what I need you to do is if you wouldn't mind going over to the home uh, and being there when I make the call to the parents. Dead silence. I said, hello, are you there? And he said, I didn't sign up for this. And hung up the phone. Thankfully, he was not trained at Asbury Theological Seminary. But one of the things that it illustrated was that for whatever reasons, he didn't understand that the call to ministry wasn't just about perks and privileges. It wasn't about the opportunity to build some great megachurch. It wasn't a gospel that would be primarily preached as, as blessing and privilege and, and, you know, name it and claim it and... and uh, you know, blab it and grab it or whatever terms you want to use in terms of a view of gospel ministry. 
he didn't understand that while perks and privileges do come with the role, the greatest part of our ministry is to stand with people during times of pain, in the midst of their problems, and in the midst of their perplexities. Fortunately, we had the number of the sheriff in that particular community who was a member of the National Police, Christian Police Officers Association. And we called him and he said yes, immediately responded. and was over and I called the parents to tell them that their oldest daughter, one of three, had taken her life. I don't know why we have such a resistance to the idea that we're called to the sick and needy. One of the things that has happened in recent years as I've observed people in pastoral ministry is that they've lost that understanding that the well have no need of a physician and that we're called to minister to those at their deepest points of need. Isaiah faced this, and if you go to the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 6, you have this understanding that uh, Isaiah, who's already been called to be a prophet, this is not his call, he's already been called. Isaiah 6 is really an explanation and an understanding of the process of the sanctification of his ministry. He'd already been called, he'd already been ministering as a prophet. But there was another step, because Israel was going to go through some very dark times, and he was being called to be God's voice, with a very tough message in the midst of that. King Uzziah had died as kings go. He was not too bad. Uh, He did fairly well for most of his ministry. But one of the realities is, is that people age, they kind of get accustomed to and used to the privileges of their ministry, the privileges of their assignment. And he began to lose focus in the closing days of Uzziah's ministry. We're told he took on the responsibilities of being a priest. God had really clearly set up a situation. He never wanted a king in the first place. But there would be three offices, prophet, priests, and kings. And they would be separated from each other in order to ensure the appropriate balance of ministry in terms of what God had in mind for his people. But Uzziah had stepped over into the priestly role, and as a result, the closing days of his ministry were not pleasing to God. And then, to complicate things even further, if you thought Uzziah had deteriorated, his son who would inherit the throne was even going to be worse. And so Isaiah, in the midst of all of this, says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I had nowhere else to look. I saw the Lord. There was a fresh revelation of who God is. And in that revelation, we begin to see God at work in Isaiah to help prepare him to be sanctified in speech so that he would communicate the difficult truths to a difficult people in a difficult time in Israel's history. He sees God. Can you just imagine this incredible picture? Uh, Seraphims moving back and forth, wings covering various parts of their body, shouting back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's thinking, wow, this earth isn't full of his glory. And then the doorposts shake at the sound of his, of these voices of praise. And Isaiah then suddenly falls under conviction because not only is not the whole earth full of his glory, in the midst of this incredible encounter with this powerful revelation of the holiness of Almighty God, 
Isaiah finds the light shining deep into his own spirit. And he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Perhaps a more accurate kind of interpretation of that might be, Oh my, I've just been caught with my pants down. I'm fully revealed. There's nothing left that hasn't been exposed. I'm undone. For I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I too am one of those people. And then God has this wonderful response. He asks one of the seraphims to go to the altar of sacrifice and to take a coal from off the altar, and the seraphim flies and applies the coal to Isaiah's lips. And the great sanctifying declaration is, with this fire, you are now cleansed. Can you imagine the emotion that must have welled up in Isaiah? First of all, the intensity of being exposed to the presence of a holy God and then being exposed to his own unholiness and then finding that God himself would intervene directly and touch his lips and he would be cleansed. Then we, the picture changes a bit. We have this kind of humor. I, having worked in Israel a lot over my career, I, I've developed a, a great appreciation for the subtle humor that the average Jewish mind and spirit seems to have. And you see it reflected a bit here in this sixth chapter of Isaiah. You see God standing up, looking around. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah's standing there and looks around and <laughs> he's the only one. But not because he's the only one, but because he has been so dramatically sanctified by the very hand of God. He jumps up and down, I can just see this, jumps up and down and says, hey, whoa, look down here. Here am I, send me. And God acknowledges that. Yes, I will send you, but let me tell you what you signed up for. Let me tell you what your calling is going to entail. And then he gives Isaiah this picture of a ministry that will have no visible fruit. Isaiah will die, and there will be no evidence that his ministry has done any good for anyone. As a matter of fact, during Isaiah's time and his ministry, things get a lot worse. And the description is, this is what's going to happen. You're going to preach your heart out, but they're not going to respond. As a matter of fact, what's going to happen is your preaching will cause them to be even more resistant. They'll, they'll, their ears will get duller. They'll get more spiritual wax in their ears, and they're not going to be able to hear the word. And, and Isaiah says, like any minister would say to the conference superintendent, just how long am I going to have to be in this assignment? And then God tells him, until the cities are wasted without habitation, until there is not a soul left to respond. But even though it will be like a forest that's been devastated by fire or a great tree that's been cut down, and all that seems to be left is a stump, one day, Isaiah, centuries after you have passed, and because of your faithfulness to minister for what you've been called to, a branch will spring out of the stump, 
and it'll be the branch of Jesse. And from the branch of Jesse will come the Messiah. And that promise that you will be privileged to communicate in your lifetime that nobody else will listen to will be turned into great hallelujah choruses. For he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so while God basically communicated very clearly what Isaiah had signed up for, he also communicated that even though in your lifetime you'll see no fruit, one day the tree will bloom again. And one day the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of salvation will be harvested because of your faithfulness. Now Isaiah probably shouldn't have been surprised by this. He was probably in his role uh, quite familiar with Old Testament history. He, he, may, he may have thought as he was listening to this about, about Moses in Exodus chapter 3. We, we know that calling. Uh, Moses who was basically pulled out of the water and became uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Essentially had been raised in Pharaoh's court to be a leader of men. But because of his act of killing and trying to hide uh, one of the uh, guards that had been oppressing his native people, he flees to the backside of the desert. And for the next several decades, this man who had been raised to be a keeper or a leader of men and a leader of women, a leader of nations, a leader of the greatest nation of the earth, is now keeping sheep for his father-in-law on the backside of the desert. One day, the mountain rumbles. One day, there's a sparkle, a flame. And Moses makes the decision to go up to the mountain. Not sure. We don't have all of the detail. But perhaps he was going to go up to see what was going on, curiosity. But I think he may have also had some, could we say, bitterness or anger or disappointment in his heart because he had taken the step to protect the people. And God had taken no step that was visible to protect the people. And perhaps he went up, whether he articulated this or not, we're not sure, but perhaps he went up to confront God. God, what's the deal? These are your people, they're in captivity, they're being treated so badly, and God then responds in that third chapter with, yeah, I've seen the afflictions of my people. And I've heard their cries by reason of their cruel taskmasters. And I am come down to deliver them. Well, perhaps at that moment, he might have had a hallelujah moment. I come out of a Pentecostal tradition. He may have pulled out his hanky and started waving it. Thank God. God's going to show up. He's going to do something. But God wasn't finished. Yes, I've seen the afflictions of my people. And I've heard their cries by reason of their cruel taskmasters. And I'm come down to deliver them. Dramatic pause. And I'm sending you to set my people free. Well, the next three chapters are quite interesting. They're filled with all kinds of excuses why he's not the one to do this. Do you have any idea how stiff-necked these people are? They're not going to believe me. He goes on and on. And finally, the scripture says that God's anger burned toward him. Because you see, he was using an excuse that perhaps Isaiah could have used. The people will not listen to me because I don't speak well. I don't speak well. 
Isaiah was going to have to use his lips and was cleansed. Moses has irritated God to the nth degree. And it says God's anger burns again. This is fine. You know, I made mouths, but if you don't think I can help you, I'm going to send your brother-in-law along, and he can be the spokesperson for the purposes. Isaiah understood his rule of life. He was called to minister to the least, the left, and the lost, to the rebellious. Moses understood what his rule of life was to be. And that was to be one willing to pay whatever price was necessary to declare the full counsel of God and the promises of God. Centuries later, Jesus would come on the scene. And in one of those very dramatic moments when he's in the temple or uh, in the synagogue, he's given the scroll to read. And, and as was the tradition, the scroll was unrolled uh, kind of sequentially. And it just happened that, that at this moment, on this day, it was unrolled to the 61st chapter of Isaiah. And as is recorded in Luke that you heard read for you, he begins to read about the fact that I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the captive, and to proclaim that this is the year of the Lord's acceptance. He closes the scroll, and he declares his rule of life. This day has this scripture been read and fulfilled in your presence. The mother and the two younger daughters came to our campus, and for the next 10 days, we had an incredible privilege to minister into the lives of that family. The father refused to come. His greatest fears had happened. His oldest daughter, who he feared would be compromised by coming into even this intentional Christian university, would not prosper. So he refused to come. But the young ladies on the floor, her roommates, took the two younger sisters in, and the two younger sisters lived in the room with her, their older sister's roommates, and they were ministered to. The mother was taken care of. The campus came around them. This particular institution, it's Taylor University, is at its best in times of both celebration and consolation was my experience and privilege to be their president for five years and watch God do that over and over and over again. And we realize that we're called to comfort those. And while there are great perks and privileges, our greatest ministry occurs during times of pain, problems, and perplexities. As I got to know the family and we interacted on a on so many occasions, I discovered why their pastor reacted the way he did. He was a young pastor. He had gone to that church, not sure what his expectations were, but it was a tough assignment, not an easy assignment. And the most cantankerous member of his official board 
happened to be this young lady's father. And so the idea that, that, and I heard about the conflict. I mean, just about everything the young pastor wanted to do, this father opposed. He resisted. He was even mounting a campaign, as I, as I remember it, to kind of unseat this pastor and get rid of him. And now the call comes after midnight. And what this young pastor didn't recognize was that his greatest opportunity to win that father was to pay the price of swallowing his pride, getting over his anger, letting go of his bitterness, overcoming his resistance to become for that dad and that family the peace of Christ and the power of Christ in the midst. I understand that later on, the young pastor kind of rediscovered his calling, and I heard months later that he had now stepped in and stepped up to this particular calling, and that, that there was a change that was occurring in his relationship with this father. It was all because he realized that his calling to that charge was not for perks and privileges. His calling was to stand in the gap during the pain and the perplexity that this family was facing. None of us should be surprised when we're called to challenging assignments. And in this day and age when hurt seems to be multiplying in so many different ways, you and I who have been responding to the Isaiah call or responding to the Moses call and who declare that we're responding to the Jesus call as the rule of life. It's interesting, as you go from Genesis to Revelation, almost universally, when people are called, they're called into the difficult rather than to the easy. Over and over, they're called to minister and be the presence of God. As Annie Johnson Flint said in her wonderful poem, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today, and Christ has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. We're the only Bible the careless world will read. We're the sinner's gospel. We're the scoffer's creed. People often ask, where is God in this? And what we hear, for those of us who have been called, is what Moses heard. I'm sending you. I'm come down. But I'm sending you to be the one who essentially will be the peace which passes understanding. It shouldn't surprise us when we realize that Jesus himself understood that that too was his call. On the night he was betrayed, he took these elements, part of the old Passover, and transformed them, re-engineered them into an, a New Testament version of a Passover, blood that would be shed, the perfect lamb of God. And then later that night, he would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and even though he had clearly communicated to his disciples what his ministry was ultimately going to cost him. We find him kneeling there, sweating as if it were great drops of blood, pleading with God, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Perhaps it's not recorded in Scripture, 
he might have heard God's spirit whispering to him, but my son, this is exactly what you signed up for. And he declares, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And all of God's people said, amen.